It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today is CEO April Foster. April's the founder and CEO of Inc. Brands, the leader in influencer commerce. She's obsessed with combining relevant products, paid content, and smart marketing with influencer brands. April lives in Kentucky with her husband, Greg, and their four young children. April Foster, welcome into the corner office. Hi, thank you. I am in a corner office today. (laughs) Well, that's good to know. And it's wonderful to have you here. Um, As we talked uh, before starting the the podcast, I had a chance to take a look at some of the videos on your website. Very, very incredible stuff that you're doing. It's it's kind of the marketing services agency of the 21st century in many ways, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think in in a lot of ways, we're kind of a reinvented version. Um, We don't do a lot of marketing that we leave that up to our partners, but, um, but it's a way for us to partner ourselves with them and we do what we do best and they do what they do best. Well, listen, we're going to have a deeper conversation about that because I want to be able to separately speak with you about how ROI might benefit from your services. But we'll get to that in a minute. What I really kind of wanted to start with today was hear a little bit about your early years. You know, entrepreneurs aren't born every day. um, And it would be great to hear what you were like as a kid and some of the things that you went through growing up. Oh, goodness. I do. I do feel like um, entrepreneurs are kind of born. It's it's very difficult to make an entrepreneur. It's kind of in your DNA. So, um, yeah, I, I can think back and um, I grew up in Texas and South Texas where it's hot, humid and there's lots of mosquitoes. It's incredibly glamorous. And um, <laughs> and um, my dad and his family ran a lumber yard and home goods store in West Columbia, which, you know, just a piece of trivia, West Columbia was the first capital of Texas until they realized that there was lots of mosquitoes there and it all the ah. time. And they rightfully moved it. And um, so in West Columbia, Texas, we um, they owned a lumberyard and hardware store. And I was, I don't know, three or four years old. And um, my mom would drop me off while she went grocery shopping in town. And I would sell, I would, my sister and I would make these greeting cards if I use it loosely out of typing paper and crayons. <laughs> and then we'd go sell it to the customers in my dad's store. Really? At three or four yes, years old? Yes. I mean, I, was, wow. so, I, mean, <laughs> I, I really want to brag on myself here because I was like, what can we make? Like, how scrappy can we get? <laughs> and we had a hundred percent margin on these things, obviously. And oh, then we'd go absolutely. sell it and we didn't even have to pay. We just walk around to the 
patrons and we sell a piece of paper for 25 cents. And I just feel like <laughs> my whole life has come full circle because, you know, my first main entrepreneurial um event as an adult is it was studio calico and i sold paper so <laughs> right, and for good margins right. not 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 100 margin sadly nobody was giving me my um, supply for free but yes i do feel like my <laughs> life in some ways has come full circle well that's awesome so was that like an everyday thing was that on the weekends how many years did you and your sis do that well i don't know probably just when my mom had to go grocery shopping and she didn't have another yeah. option but um so but I, I remember it vividly and so i do feel yeah. like you learn those things early on like i could see oh there's customers and they're here so and i like right. creating things and um and then you know growing up we we moved to tennessee when i was 8 years old and we had we had moved from the country in Texas to the, the city, the suburbs in Tennessee. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of traffic down our dead end street, a little bit more than it was in the country. And, um, we would right. make all sorts of things. We'd make things out of Play-Doh and let them dry and sell those. And I mean, my poor neighbors took pity on us and bought things, but you do learn a lot um, in those early years <laughs> selling things. Was it door to door? Did you set up a table? Combination I mean, of both? I was good at all that stuff. I just really, <laughs> I liked making money because <laughs> we didn't have any. Yeah, so any money well, I made was... What does a four-year-old spend you know, her quarters on? I mean, were you, were you encouraged to save? Was it something that you wouldn't treated yourself with? You know, what did you do without that newfound? So I have to commend my parents because they set me up on this system where I got four quarters a week and then any other extra quarters I made. And I would give two to charity, which usually to our church. And then one, save one quarter. And then I got to spend another quarter, which usually went towards cool. stickers at the Hello Kitty store. So, <laughs> so again, <laughs> your favorite price yes, at the time. Again, sure. stickers, paper, my life is full circles. <laughs> How fun. How fun. That's great. What other kinds of leadership or entrepreneurial things were you involved with in your younger years? Well, um, so I guess this carried on to high school for sure. And um, yeah. when I was in high school up in um, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I was a, a, a part of, I don't even know what the class was, but I remember the teacher's name. His name was Mr. Robinette. And um, <laughs> he also was a, a sponsor for the Future Business Leaders of America Club. So I participated oh. in that and like lots of competitions yeah. and and then um, we ran the local the bookstore for our school, and um, I got to run that. And we I can't remember how it came about, but we were going through all the types of things we could sell besides t-shirts, sweatshirts, and the like. And was looking for things that we could sell on a more regular basis. And we um, picked balloons because we had a helium tank, and um, ah. at the school because <laughs> the school had a helium tank, and the school would buy the helium, so the bookstore didn't have to. And, um, and we were, zero yeah, cost exactly, uh, sales exactly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we can order all these balloons, and people can send them like balloonograms to their friends, girlfriends, awesome. whatever. And that was incredibly successful. It paid for um, our class trip to New York, and um, and I, again, it's like all these things point toward now with Studio DIY the shop.studiodiy.com. We sell balloons and yeah. I know about balloons and I also know about helium <laughs> and I'm passionate about, you know, helium is a dying, um, or it's not going to be a resource that's available forever. So the price of helium has gone yeah. up considerably. So oh. there's all this little knowledge that you collect along the way that I feel like is, is fun as it relates to products and sales yeah. and causes you to be 
conscientious about what you do. So how did your needs change from Hello Kitty stickers when you were in your <laughs> single digits to, you know, your teenage years? Did, did you did you follow the same approach with uh, charitable giving, savings and spending things on your own? Was that a kind of a, an ongoing approach that your mom and dad shared with you? I mean, you know, as I got older, I had a lot more freedom in, yeah. in how I spent my money. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very fiscally conservative. And I think that just comes from growing up with a family that didn't have a lot of money and sure. um, didn't have a lot of things. You learn how to do more with less. And that is definitely a principle that has carried on to me throughout high school, college, yeah. and even and even now. My husband laughs at me, but he's like, April, we have money. We can spend on this, but I don't want to. My, <laughs> so. my wife would call that savvy scrappy or scrappy savvy. Huh? Yes. Or cheap or frugal, you know. <laughs> I like scrappy better. Uh, uh -huh. Just you and your sister or were there other kids in your family? Yes. Just, just okay. us. Just us. But I think that did lead me to have a lot of kids because I like playing games yeah. growing up and yeah. um, the, the fun part of, you know, having a competition and strategy and whatnot. And I only had one person to play with. So a lot of times I didn't have having to play right. solitaire right. or something by myself if she didn't want to play. So I... I my husband and I decided early on we wanted to have several. Yeah. We didn't know four would happen so quickly, but they did. <laughs> Twins are always a surprise, right? <laughs> yes, yes, to I'll some degree. To some degree. So um, my oldest is seven, yeah. Claire, and then Cal and Sam, the boys are twins. They're five. And then Kit, our um, little surprise, um, is four. She just wow. turned four. So, so, so we had four, under, four eight. under four for six months. And that was, looking back on it, pretty rough. At the time, <laughs> you just survive. <laughs> well, it sounds yes. like dad moved around a lot when you were growing up. What kind of a job did he have? So he left the family business and went into full-time preaching. Oh, so right. that was yeah. that was a big change for yeah. our family, yeah. for sure. And has faith been an important part of your life uh, growing up as well and into your business practice? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's the common, it's the common thread. I mean, it's, yeah. it's one of those things that, um, if, if you, if you held your faith near and dear than that, that's what drives a lot of your decision. Yeah. That's awesome. And how, and how you interact with people. So was your tithing done, uh, then w when you were younger to the church primarily, or were there other charitable, uh, you know, giving that your parents encouraged you to do? Oh, lots of, lots of other charitable giving. Yeah. I think that it's part partially because, you know, you're, we would go to church every week that that's a convenient place to give, but yes, no, lots of other opportunities. And, um, I, I did learn very early on from my parents to have, um, a level of scrutiny and what charitable giving that we did yeah. do. And, um, my parents would probably, cause we didn't have a lot of money. They wanted to make sure that when they gave it to charitable causes, it was actually getting to the people right. that needed the money right. and, or to the cause that they were trying to support. And so that's one of the things that I learned is like, you know, you need to investigate those things and know where your money's going. And now I'm incredibly, I'm heavily involved in an organization called um, Sacred Selections mm -hmm. and they help, um, they give grants to Christian couples adopting. And so they've nice. funded about 300 or so adoptions over the past 10 years. And, um, Yes, 100% of the money that, that we give to them um, goes toward funding those adoptions. And I couldn't love the founders anymore. So Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Back to your school years. Uh, we haven't yes. talked much about your student life. So were you a, uh, you know, top student, A grade, valedictorian, <laughs> you know, kind of a B student got by or, or struggled through your elementary high school and junior high school years? So I don't like talking about this because I'm almost embarrassed. I'm almost embarrassed about it. <laughs> but um, but no, I I um. So my parents, I again, I think part of this is just like genetics. It's just like my parents 
got lucky with my sister and I that we were that we were good students and that we were highly motivated. Right. But also, I think they helped instill some of those values in us early on. But they never looked at our report cards. I will oh. say that. Um, you know, back in the old days when you got a report sure. card and it was folded and you had to bring it back to your oh, team, yeah. se- folded and sealed and you had to bring it back to your teacher signed. And my parents would sign the back and without breaking the seal, of course they knew we were doing well, but, um, wow, but you know, in my mind, they just asked me if I did my best and if I did my best, they signed it. And, um, so I, I learned quickly that it, it wasn't about, it, it was about meeting the expectation, what's your aptitude? And if you can do it, you should, and, um, you should always perform your best. And so, um, I have never made a B in my life. <laughs> well, I mean like on tests, but not like on a final grade. Right. And so even all through college. And so it's almost embarrassing because now when I interview people and when I look at job resume, I never look at the GPA. So I'm right. here to say it does not matter yeah. what grades yeah. you make, um, but it matters what you learn and what you know and how you apply that. I think that that is so important. And so, yeah, I almost laugh. I wish I would have spent more of my time gaining experience and studying for tests, but you were too busy um, making money being an entrepreneur, learning about the world. Yeah, I was babysitting every night. <laughs> too bad I can't find a babysitter like that now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, um, there's an interesting lesson there, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about it. Uh, your parents had a great degree of trust for you and your sister, you know, signing the back of the report card. I I must say that would have been a very difficult thing for me to do, not, not because of a lack of trust, but, you know, it was a demonstration, it sounds like, really of their faith in you. Has that been something that you have tried to do in others, particularly in your organization as you've grown them? Ah, for sure. And I think um, one of the the biggest things that when I even have looked to when I hired um, our last COO is, you know, I have to trust them and especially somebody that's keeping control of the books. But um, I'm in a lot of cases, once I decide I'm going to trust you, I'm almost too trusting. Mm. And so um, I'm very trusting of our employees. I'm very trusting of the people that we hire, but a lot of scrutiny is given to them on the front end. Um, But once they're part of our team, you know, we're, we're off to the races and we're doing this together. So yeah, I, I really, I want to hire people with a high degree of integrity, but that along with that comes like a immense amount of trust that I place in them and in their aptitude and their ability to do the job and their ability to make smart decisions and do the best for the company, but also just like in life, do I trust you? Do yeah. Are you a yeah, very important. good, awesome human being? And yeah. most of the time the answer is yes. I feel like there's so many good people out there that it's, um, it's harder to find the bad ones. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, you've got that obviously instilled at a young age. That's terrific. Um, what about other activities during high school years? We talked a little bit about your entrepreneurial pursuits, sports, <laughs> music, you know, arts and crafts. Tell us a little bit about that side of your life. If you Yes, all the geeky stuff. Sign me up for it. So um, I'm, I was practically in every club, like in, you know, all the beta club and school school vice president, president, whatever those clubs sure. were. Um, all those, right? all the committees, student government. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for helping me out there. Um, FBLA future business leaders yeah. did that, um, did so many different clubs and, but by and large, I spent a lot of my extra time babysitting. Okay. So got it. Yeah. practically like every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, I was babysitting wow. and, um, trying what to age stock did away you start, money. What age did you start doing that April? 
Um, my, I guess I started young yeah. whenever I was like 12 or 13 yeah, right. for neighbor kid right. and, um, I had to learn CPR and all those, yeah. those good things that parents want you to know how to do. <laughs> so, yeah, and in some ways I feel like I was more qualified at age 12, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, than I am now, but, um, but no, it's, um, it's, I started when I was 12 and then once I could drive, then, you know, I could go to the higher paying jobs. Right. <laughs> So outside the neighborhood. It was great. And you did that all the way through high school. All the way through high school and even nanny through college, especially in the nights and in the summers and always for four boys. Like it was either two couples that each had two boys or it was one family that had four boys. So I really thought that I was destined to have four boys (laughs) and I didn't, but I did have four. So I feel like I knew how to juggle four growing up. Well, it sounds like you're well prepared for motherhood then as well. (laughs) As much as one can be. As much as one can be. You don't get a manual with that, right? No. No standard operating procedures. Well, you went to college. Tell us a little bit about, you know, where and why and kind of what were your motivations uh, continuing on after high school? So in high, so in high school, I knew that I would go to college. My, my parents both had college degrees. My mom had her master's and um, it was expected. I, I mean, expected, but also just like, well, I don't know what I would do without going to college, you know? And, um, I think that's one of the things about living in Kentucky and in Tennessee is that most people go into a profession and the medical professions are big here. Mm. Um, and I was really good at a lot of things. And, and I find that in talking to other CEOs, that's, that's true of them as well. You're good at a lot, but you're not really great at any one Mm, thing. And so, I mean, I went to, um, the governor's scholar program with a variety of people who made like perfect scores on their SAT or ACT for math or reading or, you know, science or something. And they were just standout successes in one category. And it was so easy for them to choose what their major was going to be and what their course in life was going to be. And I feel like that was really hard for me Mm. to choose. And so I chose speech pathology, which I'm clearly using. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you go to school? I went to Western Kentucky University. So I got a full ride to come down here and, um, and that played a huge part of my decision because, um, because my parents, like I said, we didn't have money growing up. And so I wanted to get out of college without, um, incurring a lot of debt. And And was it a a scholastic scholarship or was it? Yes. Yes. Scholastic. Yep. And, um, so yeah, I do not play sports. (laughs) 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 That's funny. Um, but yeah, I wish I did. I wish I played sports, but. Um, I'm kind of not coordinated enough. Um, if crafting was a sport, yeah, then I go. would, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think that, um, I, I didn't put, um, as much thought into where I went to college and who I'd be connected with and the networking opportunities in Western Kentucky is certainly a fantastic school, but, um, and, and is actually now the second largest school in the state. Wow. And so it's a good, it's a good place to come, but you know, I, I could have probably been better prepared and from a business perspective had I gone somewhere so else. So speech pathology. So you did kind of a couple of years of general ed, I imagine, and then did more specialization in your junior and senior. Did you envision yourself as going into that field, uh, you know, as a consultant or as a speech pathologist? What was kind of your... <laughs> You're thinking and how did that I, shift? I mean, I thought I liked it. Yeah. I thought I liked it till I did an internship and realized that I was going to be making hardly any money and I was going to basically be babysitting. Yeah. So, um, it, early on now, as you progress through your career, that changes, but you know, the, the entry level positions, that's 
what sure. it was going to be tough. I mean, it was going to be really tough with your master's degree to even make ends meet as a family. And so, um, I was like, wow, I just had to do a lot of soul searching. Yeah. And at the same time, my husband, um, well, he was my boyfriend at the time was in, um, a communications and business major. And, um, he, he I found what he was learning so much more intriguing. Mm. So I started auditing his classes and taking all the tests, but not getting the grades. I mean, you, you get the grades and you get partial credit, but it doesn't go against you if you don't make an right. A or B or, you know, it doesn't hurt you in any way. And so, um, by the time I got to my senior year, I only had to take 12 hours per semester to graduate. And um, so I was auditing these extra, like two or three, maybe even four extra classes a semester just to learn as much as I can. And um, and um, loved that. And so as soon as I graduated with my bachelor's um, in speech pathology, yeah. I went uh, almost straight into pharmaceutical sales. So, and so you did, did your internship between your junior and your senior year in speech yes. pathology? Okay, got mm-hmm. it. So that's when you yes. kind of knew this mm-hmm. wasn't for you. Uh, exactly so exactly yes. pharma, but i didn't want to like delay yeah. you know i didn't want to delay my getting my degree and um at the time you know going into pharmaceutical I, I thought well what what way can i marry business and sales and what i really like doing with the like a more clinical background and so it seemed to make sense yeah. and 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 I, I to be honest i loved i love every job i do <laughs> <laughs> how long were you in pharma sales um, for five oh, years, wow. two and a half yeah. years as a rep and two and a half years as a manager. With, with one of the majors or were you with a regional company? No. Um, and that's one of the things I was so fortunate to get to join this company. It was called First Horizon. Okay. And then it sounds like a bank. And then they changed their name to Sayel. And um, then they um, got bought out by a company called Shionogi out of Japan. And so it was a small, yeah. like $200 million company, but Little they were market. growing so rapidly. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. They were growing so rapidly and I got exposed to so many things. And even just becoming a manager at the age of 25 is unheard yeah. of in, you know, the larger companies. And so I got to sit on managed care committees and train new reps and go interview large pools of candidates because they were based out of Atlanta. So I could just hop down there when they were doing, um, a big, um, when they would bring in a bunch of candidates all at once yeah. and do a big expansion, I got to help with like the realigning of the territories. And I just got exposed to so many things that I don't think I otherwise would have that, um, it was great. So a couple it was real. I really feel fortunate. And it's funny because at the time I kind of felt embarrassed that I wasn't part of one of the big right. ones, but looking back on it, it was such a blessing. Yeah, and I'm sure it's helped form some of your decisions since then as well. So, so a couple of years sure. as a sales rep and then a few years as a manager, is that how it played out? Yes, a couple years as a rep, a couple years, well, total of five, but about half the time as a rep, half the time as a manager. So what were some of your early leadership lessons uh, in that role? Well, for one is I had no clue what I was doing, so I <laughs> knew I had to figure it out fast. Yeah. So um, um, one is I found I found mentors mm. and um, I found um, a guy named Kevin out of Michigan. He kind of adopted me under his wing and another- you um, senior to like, you or- Yes. Oh, yeah. Every, I mean, I was 25. Everybody was senior to me. <laughs> and, but the good thing about me being 25 is I knew I did not know everything. I knew I knew nothing. Um, and then a lady named Tammy out of Alabama. So I had like somebody to my north and somebody to my south. And they, I would call them and I and get their advice whenever I could. And um, Kevin was awesome at setting up spreadsheets for me that I could just plop in and um, it really be an aid to my reps and helping them visualize their data. And then Tammy was so fantastic at um, like being like a tough woman before girl bosses were a oh, thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, she um, had to be tough she, to get she where she really, was, I'm sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's a male dominated yeah. industry. I mean, being a rep, it was female dominated, but being in management was definitely yeah. male dominated. And so she was awesome. And well, both of them were and, and still probably, probably still are. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Tammy. If you're listening. <laughs> we'll make sure they get a copy of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're awesome. But yeah, I think set up mentors and, um, for me, it was like learning everything I could about the industry that, that I could possibly retain. And that came from like, you know, at the time listening to books on tape while I was driving or CD back in the day and, um, reading everything that I could and, um, asking reps, asking doctors and really asking them from the position of like, I really wanted to know, not just, I'm trying to make the next step in my career, but being passionate and attentive Mm. to what's going on in the, in the industry. So, um, yeah, I think that, and then just basic like manager management 101, like one minute manager type (laughs) lessons that you learn early on. Um, so the, the, what about your, what about your parents? Did they have any influence on your leadership style? You you mentioned your father was a preacher minister Mm -hmm. and your mother had a master's degree. Did she work full-time as well? Uh, she worked part-time off and on full-time before my sister and I were born, but then, um, goodness, they were, um, um, she worked, she worked as a speech pathologist. So that's okay. kind of where that, inf- but she told me I should be a lawyer and she was probably <laughs> right. <laughs> so listen to your parents. <laughs> so, right. but, so, um, so what kind of influence do you think they had, if any, on your leadership style well, or some of the leadership lessons you might've learned maybe back in the, uh, in the lumber yard in the early days yes. or else? I don't know. You know, my parents are so interesting because I feel like I won the parent lottery and then I tell my mm. kids they won the grandparent lottery because I mean, it, um, I grew I mean, I had such a good home life. Um, yeah. I, I mean, growing up, it was f- fantastic with my parents. They were so fair and so kind and, um, so loving and like, they were the truly like the parents that sacrifice everything for their kids. And, um, I don't know. I think that I'm sure they made mistakes and they could probably name every single one of them. But, um, <laughs> but in yes. terms of like what I learned in terms of leadership is like the, the honesty, the fairness, the trust. Yeah. Um, and then I think behave, my, my mom is probably, I don't know if you're familiar with behavior therapists, but um, my mom was probably one of the original <laughs> ones back in the day. And um, just really was good at sticking to her guns on things and setting expectations that you didn't even know she was setting, but, um, and she's just so good at teaching and so patient Mm -hmm. and, you know, and those types of things you have to be when you're a leader, you have to be, not everybody's going to learn in the same way or at the same pace. And, um, your response to the same style. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, so I think that I learned a lot and I didn't know I was learning, (laughs) which is great, which is great. Well, you know, we learn that as parents too, as, as much as we'd like to think our kids are all the same and they're from the same seeds, you know, you know, from your own experience, as you told me earlier, your twins being about as different as Arnold's source could be here and, uh, uh, Danny uh, DeVito. Danny DeVito, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's what really one of the key things that we can choose from our parents. And I, I know that as I observe my parents, you know, I think my dad used more of a cookie cutter approach with each of his boys, whereas my mother, you know, kind of understood some of those differences. And I think, you know, the relationships kind of evolved because of that. And I think we recognize in our children and hopefully in those that work with us that, uh, you know, you can't really treat everybody the same way. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. 
So how has your leadership style evolved over time? Would you, would you describe it differently today than you would back then? Well, I mean, I hope so because <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm making fewer mistakes and less impactful mistakes. Yeah. Um, now, um, I definitely would say, um, I've gotten a lot more patient as mm. with age and I'm 38 by the way, and I don't mind telling people, but, um, I do think that when you're 25 and you want everything to happen now yeah. um, versus when you, you get a little age underneath your belt, you, you, you have a little more, a little more patience toward people and understanding. And, um, I, you know, one of the pieces of feedback that I got early on in my management career, we had to do these 360 reviews, you know, and, right. and that was awesome. That was, I love that. And I wish, I wish we had the resources to do that in my company right now. As soon as we do have the resources, I want to do it because I think it's so Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. And, um, it, but it's been like the constant feedback I've gotten throughout my entire life. So there was no surprise. And, um, that was that like, I need to work on my tact. And so I started doing a lot of you know, and the mentors that I set up for myself, I, um, would run emails by them or certain correspondence by them before I would send it and, um, just be my own policeman, you know? And, um, so I think I've, I think I've definitely gotten better at that. I would say it hasn't gotten worse, but it's still, it's still an area of weakness for me. I still, I still want things to happen now. And as soon as they can possibly happen, and I still will push until the absolute limit, because that's what you do is, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO. And I'm right. and so I have to remember that and have to be mindful of it. And well, you mentioned, about, yeah. you mentioned about tact. We uh, recorded a podcast a few days ago and <laughs> one of the feedback <laughs> the CEO got early in his career was that he had to know about diplomacy. And he said, what's diplomacy? <laughs> <laughs> Literally had to go to a dictionary and, you know, kind of understood it. So <laughs> So I think my problem is, is the same as he's having. It's like, well, I mean, I expect everybody else to tell me exactly how it is. So why can't I tell (laughs) them? It's the problem. Yeah. Well, you know, know, that's a very common thread with a lot of entrepreneurs because you have a vision, (laughs) you have a passion and you just, you know, you, you go the straight and narrow to get it done. And, uh, sometimes it's difficult to know that, there are others that maybe don't either share that same entrepreneurial spirit or perhaps that level of passion and you don't understand why, right? And yes, exactly. It can be a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Scrapbooking, we know in your in your bio is one of your first passions and you turned that into a business. Had that been something you've been doing for a number of years, April? You know, honestly not. I uh, started um, out learned about crafting. I was just a hobbyist in the scrapbooking industry, which right. is basically, um, kind of extinct now and it's sad, but, um, well, it's but, moved you know, online I, too, right? And there's quite a bit of scrapbooking. Really, I mean, online. with social media, so many people just keep track of their memories that's digitally. True. And, um, Facebook. not that that's sad, that's not right. sad to keep track of your memories. I think that's fantastic, but there's just new, new and different ways right. to do it. But, um, I got started when, honestly, I was on the road um, working at the pharmaceutical company. So I was managing 11 reps across three states, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio, and some of Southern Indiana, so four, I guess. And um, I was in a hotel room about three or four nights a week. And so the first thing I did as a manager was uh, make a quilt entirely by hand. Oh. And I did that um, in about three months. (laughs) 
then I thought, well, I got to figure out something else to do because this is not going to hold my attention while I'm in the hotel room and like these tiny towns at night with all this time on my hands. And so, um, so a friend of mine and I started talking about scrapbooking and I had been to all these towns and there were stores, but they weren't. Um, the products that they had were outdated and the products in the magazines, by the time the magazines made it to print, it was, you couldn't get the product anymore. And yeah, they weren't. (laughs) And it was, the product wasn't even barely at Michael's at the time. I mean, they may have had like a few supplies on the shelf, but not very many. And nobody was really pairing content and commerce. And so, um, that there was a hole in the marketplace and there was this huge community of crafters and like-minded people. And I was one of them and I was like, uh-huh. nobody is servicing us. And so I thought, well, I'll just do it. I'll just, we'll just do it myself. You yeah. know, <laughs> we'll just awesome. set out there. So, um, so we, I started Studio Calico with about a $4,000 investment, which at the time seemed huge. And, um, just figured out um, through friends and through our developer who's still with us 11 years later, which is funny. I was in uh, the wedding of, I was in a wedding and the groom is a graphic designer. And I, all I knew about him was that he was a graphic designer and he must be a nice guy because he was marrying my friend. So um, once I decided I wanted to start a website, I was like, well, I got to have a designer. So I called him up and um, he said, sure. um, I'll, you know, I'll design, I can, I can do your branding and logo work, but I can't do your website you know, I don't design, I don't do that type of design. I was like, well, then who does? And he says, well, <laughs> I've worked with this guy, this guy yeah. named Kenan and, um, and, and maybe you should talk to him. I was like, okay, well, let's get on with Kenan. He's like, well, he's in Germany. Oh. <laughs> so here I am sitting in Kentucky and I need to talk to this Kenan dude in Germany. And so we get on the phone and I was like, Hey, can you build me a website? Sure. I need it up in three weeks. Well, that's going to be hard to do an entire e-commerce website in three weeks. Yeah. I mean, what's the problem? Don't you build websites? <laughs> <laughs> April yeah, tax. exactly. He did it. He did it. So, I mean, and he's still with me 11 years later. Oh, so. that's awesome. That's, is he still in Germany? No, he's here now. He's he moved, moved here about a year ago. Yeah, when we when we decided to like um, amp up a little bit and go into more growth mode, he moved here. Fabulous. So, so did uh, Calico kind of evolve to Inc.? Is that uh, how the business has developed? Tell us a little bit of that story. Yeah, so grew um, Studio Calico to be about a $5 million business on nice. its own and was noticing that, um, well, one, scrap, I knew that scrapbooking wouldn't be around forever. And it was it was sad, but a yeah. realistic fact, like my family's livelihood was dependent on this. And we were not, and any entrepreneur will, will tell you this, but we were in high growth mode at, Inc., or at Studio Calico growing about 20%. 20 to well, sometimes up to 70% year wow. over year. And, um, that eats cash. Yeah, so it does. like in a big way, and I would talk with my accountant cause this is before I had finance people and knew what I would, I don't still don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> knew what I was doing to some degree. And I was like, it You've says hired some good people that know what they're doing. Yes, right? Exactly. <laughs> now I've hired people. But it says like, I've made all this money. Why isn't that money in my bank account? Yeah. And I couldn't figure out why the money that I'd made was not in my bank account. And, um, and, and, you know, cause all these, all my customers thought I was rolling in the dough yeah. and all, I mean, my, by the bank state or by the P and L I, we should be having money, but I didn't, I didn't understand there was a cash flow statement. <laughs> so right. sadly, right. um, but anyway, I noticed that collaborations were really taking off. Like every time we would do a collaboration with an influencer, um, the product would sell really describe well. Describe a collaboration. I'm not sure I know what you mean by that. 
So a collaboration where we would um, work with a designer or an influencer who would um, influence or direct the design in some way of a product that we were doing and we would put, we would co-brand the product. So we would say Lindsay Letters plus Studio Calico. And then all of a sudden her sales in her own store would go up and ours would go up as well. And it was just really nice to marry people from different industries and yes, lots of synergy. And, um, so those were doing well. And so we started doing some more long-term collaborations and one of them was with Allie Edwards and as a friend and kind of very informal advisor to her. I mean, we would just talk, um, for hours about how, um, where the, where the scrapbooking industry was headed and what, um, you know, what she, like what she needed to be on the lookout for, like Mm -hmm. lessons that I had learned and, um, my concerns that I had, her concerns. I mean, we were just, we, we were in it, man, we were in it. And so (laughs) we would talk and finally it got to the point where we were like, well, we should just do this together. Mm. And, um, we should, um, white label our site, consolidate all of her ideas into one brand, her own brand where she can talk directly to her customers. And instead of having it happen in a lot of different disparate locations, she could just talk to them directly. And, um, it sounded novel. It was so novel at the time because nobody else had done it. And we launched her site and in the first year did a million and a half in revenue. And awesome. that was fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And, um, last year she ended up over well over 2 million. And I mean, we are, we've just continued to grow that brand and it just really shows what happens when you have a, an influencer and a thought leader that is so connected with their following and right. so and they are their following for all intents and purposes and um, who cares so deeply about creating meaningful and relevant mm. products and, mm. um, and what they can do whenever they have the infrastructure to support it. So, um, so then we've just set out to replicate that so again and again. you just took that principle and then went to look for other folks that you could do the same mm-hmm. partnering with. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Wow. That's cool. So. That's yeah, cool. we learned a lot, and Allie will tell you we learned a lot together. Yeah. Is it a revenue sharing <laughs> model? Bad. Is it a revenue sharing model then, or how does that work? Or sure, the economics. The yeah. economics generally work. Um, we we usually do like some type of profit share, right. so we have predefined expenses not to exceed, and then we we share the profit. And so, you do that so with each partner. Same... Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. very interesting. Very exactly. Interesting. And, and, and we, what would you say are kind of the core? values or the core, um, not so much values, the core strategies that you bring to the party? What is it that your organization has that level of expertise of that that really adds value to the partnership? Well, one, I think we have an operational willingness Mm. and are set up to work with influencers and not all businesses are or can be, but we can we can turn on a dime pretty fast. And um, we were set up like that from the beginning. the and I think that's important to note the operational willingness first and foremost, and then secondly, it's um, we have a back end to our site set up to allow the communications back and forth, and to basically allow them to design the product and help us develop the product mm-hmm. and be heavily involved in the process. And um, we do everything from design, sourcing, and developing product down to marketing, like email marketing, yeah. especially digital ad buys. Um, customer service fulfillment and we do it in a very boutique way in a very personal way because these people are their brand and they're connecting it's another way for them to connect with their followers right, and right. Um, we have to be an offshoot of that we can't be we can't be unaligned to their mission overall 
And are they mostly consumer products? Do you do consumer services? Are there B2Bs? You know, what, what, how does it kind of classify in the traditional sense of, of verticals? <laughs> I think that we're very category defining. Yeah. There's nobody out there that's doing exactly what we do. So right. I, if I had to put it in a box, I would say B2B to C. Yeah. But because partially the influencer is our customer, but really they're more, we call them our brand partner. They bring the ideation and um, promotion to the table and we bring the infrastructure and know-how of how to run these businesses and brands. So Very novel. Yeah, love it. And how many employees today, April? Uh, 53. Wow, fantastic. So, which several of them are... Sorry, go ahead. Yes, privately held. And several of them are, we do our own fulfillment in-house. And um, that may not always be the case. Hopefully we'll be opening up a DC on the West Coast in the coming years. I mean, not, this is not an announcement. (laughs) Hopefully we'll grow to the point where a DC on the West Coast is needed. But um, right now we're we're happy to be located right here in Kentucky on the I-65 corridor where lots of goods and packages are shipped out yeah, from because it's country. a very short window. North, yeah. north of 10 million in sales. Where are you on that ramp? Um, yeah, we, yeah. Um, we are, have grazed the nine mark. Yeah, so fantastic. that's great. Fantastic. Yes. Well, great. We're on our way. Terrific. Let's talk a little bit about your people. Um, you know, you've obviously had to grow an organization. Sounds like you had some good folks that you kind of brought along with you, the Kennans and the others. Uh, but when you, you know, are making bets on people, what, what are some of the things you look for? You know, what are you looking for when you invest in folks? Goodness, what do we look for? Um, first of all, obviously integrity. I think yeah. that it's so important. And that is, you know, that has to be there. And we look for smart people. That doesn't mean good grades. That just means I... I, myself and our COO and all the leadership in our, they can't think for other people. Like that would, we would be moving backwards as an organization if we had to do the thinking for everyone. And um, I really want to hire smart people, people who know and will do better than me at just about anything. So, so <laughs> necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean coming from a top school. It could mean savvy or as we talked earlier, scrappy and savvy. Yes. Or you're looking yes. for people, do you hire people that come in without university degrees, for example? Yes. Yeah. I, I never even, to be honest, I never even look to see if mm. they have a university degree, which is so funny coming from the straight A student, but right. I don't even care. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, um, and then last, I would say we look for happy people because you can't train people to yeah. be happy. You just can't train happy. Right. right. So you, you just have to be a happy, pleasant person. doesn't mean that you can't have hard times because that happens to everyone, but you just generally need to be a positive person. How deep do you personally go into the interviewing process? Are you, um, I'm sure interviewing your own direct reports, but do you go a level Mm -hmm. or two below? Do you have a pretty flat organization? You get involved in all interviewing? We're fairly flat, but, um, but I definitely don't get involved in all interviewing. Um, our fulfillment team, um, they're pretty self-sufficient and it's only the leadership roles that I'll get involved in there or anybody that is promoted from within. Um, I'm definitely very hands-on in like how we promote, how we set up our compensation, how we communicate compensation. And I'm very, very open about that. Like I want to be as transparent as we can about as an organization Mm -hmm. and, um, and be creative <laughs> there yeah. because we're a small, we're still a small company and people forget they hear 50 and they think you're a huge co- company. You were not a big company. <laughs> we are not at all a big company. So, um, 
Yeah, I think that I need to be as hands-on as possible, but there's there's always those times where you can't and you have to trust. But when I can, I'm I'm definitely involved. And in anybody kind of director, definitely director VP level, and then I love to be involved with the management yeah. as well. What about on the sales side? Do you get deeper in that organization, that part of the organization? So it sales sales reports directly up to me. Okay. So I'm fairly involved yeah. there. Yeah. I, somehow <laughs> exactly. I thought that'd be the case. I'm incredibly passionate there. <laughs> you and can have take strong the opinions. girl out of sales, but you can never take sales out of the girl, right? That's right. Um, That's right. Tell us about some of the interview questions that really have worked for you in the past as you've gone and you know tried to select some folks, particularly getting some of these. Oh you know, goodness, more I'm so passionate. Like, I love interviewing. Yeah. I love interviewing so much. And I think it's because I got so much practice at it early right. on that um, from one of my mentors, he would tell me how to do it. And he would, he, he was hilarious. This is, I'm talking about Kevin um, from Michigan. He would stop people about five minutes in if he knew we weren't going to hire yeah. them. And he would start coaching them on how to, how, <laughs> how to interview themselves. for their next job. He was fantastic. <laughs> I was like, you have such guts to do that to somebody. I've never done that, but he was fantastic at it. And he didn't do it. It wasn't like mean. He was yeah. really trying to help people. Yeah. He's like, okay, we can spend the next 20 minutes with me, like trying to like, entertain you that you have a chance of this position or I could spend the next 20 minutes talking to you about how you can improve you actually say <laughs> so that, that you can get the next job. Yes. Yes. He was fantastic. He was now, fantastic. Would you do that as well? And would honestly, you ever emulate like, that stuff? No, I've never done that. I've never had the guts to do that. But, um, but um, my key phrase though is I think I have what I need. So I will say yeah. my, that's my one piece of advice. Always when you go into an interview with two we usually have two people when right. I'm in the interview. And so if I know I've made the decision and we're not moving forward with this candidate, my, my phrase is, I think I have what I need. <laughs> you look at the other person, <laughs> and the other say, person let's knows. wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, wrap it up. Let's go. But, um, well, let's say so you no, find someone that you like and how do you, yeah, what questions yeah, do I what ask kind of questions work for you to get at some of those things? Cause it's yes. hard, you know, it's hard in a 20 or a 30 minute interview to get at things like trust and integrity. Yes. One is I want to know why inked. And I'll usually just ask why yeah. inked. And that helps me understand how much they know about the company. If they don't know anything about the company, then it's we're right. done. Like that's right. it. Let's wrap it but up. By and large, by the okay. time they get to me, they know. Yeah. They know the answer to that question. And so then it's about assessing that. Or I'll ask them, you know, what do you know about inked? But um we get a lot because we're um we're, you know, in um, the digital age and we do a lot on social media. So I usually ask them, who do you follow on social, like people or brands? Cause that tells me a lot about what type of, like, what are the, what do they like? And I just, I really want to know what they like. And then if they can't name, if they tell me like, Oh, you know, I follow Everlane, then that tells me they're up on trends and they're going to be doing, maybe interested in some unique mm. marketing, a community based marketing versus, um, I shop at Amazon, right. <laughs> you know, or right. something like that, or I follow Amazon. Um, um, I all, I love asking them because we're in a super scrappy environment. And so we're, prioritization and organization is key. There's, you're never going to get everything checked off your to-do list. So I need to know, make sure the people that we hire know what's mm. important and how to prioritize. So I usually ask them in terms of the past, like I, I'm an old school. I like the star technique, like, like tell me in the past what you did. Cause that'll better predict future behavior. So, um, tell me about a time when you couldn't get it done. How did you prioritize and what was the result? And usually can tell from that answer if there really was a time, if they've thought through it and or not, you can, you tell good and bad answers there right. real fast. Um, 
Um, I love this question. Um, who managed you the best and why? Because like we were talking about earlier, you know, I want to know if they're going to just as much if it's a fit for them. Is it a yeah. fit for us? And uh, or just much of this. I said that backwards. Just as much if it's a fit for us, they need to determine sure. if it's a fit for them. I want to make sure that they work right. well with that manager and, and, and usually her skills, you know? Um, and then I think the, the last best question I have is what questions do you have for me? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, cause I want to know what yeah. they want to know. And if they come in with so, a written list, that's um, impressive, right? If they try to think up, it is start impressive. thinking up something off the top. I always tell our final candidates, if you haven't done it already, please, please write down your questions, even if you have them memorized, because it makes a favorable impression. Mm -hmm. It shows that you're prepared. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you make sure like you can at least say, oh, we covered this, we covered this, we covered this. And then you you feel like you're having a conversation as opposed to it being so one-sided with one person asking questions and waiting for the answer. It's very good to do that because so often um, candidates don't spend enough time really trying to understand whether or not the culture is right for them. And, you know, in our recruiting practice, we spend a lot of time particularly doing psychometric and psychographic tests and other types of indicators of how well they may fit into that culture. Because frankly, you know, best qualifications in the world, you know, will only get you Mm -hmm. so far if you're not going to be able to fit in and get along well with the hiring manager, let alone the overall company culture. Do you you use any of those types of tests? Do you use just tests or any type of psychographic or psychometric in your evaluation of, of, of potential candidates? No, but our HR director would love me to. <laughs> we, we are like in this whole like budget. We just have like so little budget because we're in growth mode that we don't we don't do that as much as we should. But I think that that'll definitely be in our future. That it's very important to us. Culture yeah. is so incredibly important, like you, you said. And, against um, April, I mean, there's just no way in a half an hour, forty five minutes, you can get that information. It's very difficult. No, it's very difficult. Yeah, I think that I think that those. But we, if they have done them, we ask them. We generally ask them if they've yeah. taken them, and like I think there's like this enneagram, and we'll we'll screen right. for a lot of that. We'll just ask sure. them if they've taken it and share see it what us. it <laughs> see what they come out with. Yeah, share with us if you've well, done have this your HR before. director give me a call. Right We've got some very cost effective solutions I could share with him or her. Okay, but, good. Uh, yeah, you know it is. Uh, I, we probably I would say April, particularly at the executive level. I literally had three done last night. We're finishing up a CFO search for a $300 million company on the West Coast. And I had every one of them take it. And the CEO has taken it as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I compare and contrast. And, you know, when it gets close and you've got two or three really strong contenders, particularly for that executive position, you can't afford to make mistakes. And, you know, getting that executive Mm -hmm. uh, fit is so well, is is so important. And, And unfortunately, a lot of CEOs tend to hire people that are like themselves. And usually those are the worst hires, Mm -hmm. you know, because they can be the best of friends, but they have the same blind spots, right? That's exactly right. No, I try to definitely hire to my weaknesses and I want my managers to do the same thing. A couple last questions and we're getting close to time here. And um, this is kind of a personal question, but you did bring it up earlier. And I always like to ask this if it's something that kind of comes up. And, you know, you mentioned about your faith and obviously having grown that up, grown up in the church and, you know, giving your charitable contributions as you went. Is that a part of your company? Do you, is that, you know, the values that either you've learned or is it something that's more transparent uh, in terms of your faith-based beliefs? And does that play out in, uh, uh, in Inked? You know, mm-hmm. honestly, it doesn't. Um, well, I mean, I, I, hate, I hate to answer so 
flatly like that, but um, we're not like a faith-based company. We don't, um, we don't have like right. prayer hour or that anything like that. On, on board. <laughs> um, we, yes, <laughs> no, no, we don't. But I do think that um, we are, we are a very like yeah. good, wholesome organization Morals to be a part of. I think people come here and they, yes, from a moral and an ethical standpoint. And I, th- I think that that is um, mainly because that's who I like to be, sur- I'm, who I like to be surrounded by. And so our first few key hires were people who are, yeah. Just good people, like right. honestly good people. And um, and then they hire other good people. And it's like um like Steve Jobs said, you know, the A student will hire another A student and but a B student right. is likely to hire a C. Right. So um I'm sure I've totally misquoted no, I, that, but I've you, that you get before. the point. Yeah. And so I think yeah, I think that when people um um when you have a culture that is so friendly and so welcoming and so kind and loving and you know we've had some people that have had personal yeah. tragedies here and the 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 group rallies around them and it's just you, you tend to attract up like kind. attracting more yeah. people yeah. like that yes yeah. exactly exactly but i think there there's good people in every faith and um or yeah. even, even no faith. <laughs> so um, there's lots of good people out there. And um, we really just look to make sure that they fit from a cultural perspective and from a, um, from, a, are they, are they smart? Are they happy? Are they positive people? Do they have a right. high degree of integrity, you know, and you can have that no Which matter, no matter what Very your background point. is. Uh, last mm-hmm. question yes, for you, Any, you know, career and life advice, particularly to new college grads, or maybe some of our middle market audience that are, you know, got their eyes on getting into the C-suite or perhaps their own corner office. You know, what are some of the key things that uh, when you look back at your career and, and, and think about, you know, the things that have really made you successful, what would you say those, some of those key um, characteristics are and the key thread through many of your experiences? Um, for sure, um, making connections and networking. And, um, I think that is key is like, I didn't realize how important that was early on and it's so important. And, um, that kind of goes along with making those connections and taking, taking internships and don't not Uh, working for the money, working for where your areas of interest is in and where, um, where you can see yourself being, what you're passionate about doing and, so true. When you're young, don't work for yeah. the money. And work even for like the you did as a, that internship as a speech for, pathologist, sometimes it's important to do things yes. that you find out you don't like because then that's, you know, a dead end. You don't you have to don't go further down, do. right? <laughs> yeah, it saved me a lot of heartache. I would have been like, had a master's right. degree that I wasn't going to do anything with. And I would have been owing money instead of yeah. <laughs> not receiving it. But um, I also think that like, paying attention Mm -hmm. is so important. Like I just try to pay attention to everything I'm doing. And I think it's important for everyone, no matter what job they're in to just pay attention, like be on it, like look at everything, look at what's going on in other industries that can be applicable to yours and um, find those key things that could be a differentiator for yourself. And then last, I would say um, like figure out what it is, that you enjoy. And there's something about every job. Like when I first started Studio Calico and I was packing boxes every day, uh, I knew that I really liked, I mean, I, I loved right. making the box. Like, and I also love pulling the order. I, I don't know. I like so many things. I can get passionate about just about anything, but um, like I would have races with our staff to see who <laughs> could fold the most boxes in a minute. And then um, when we were weighing boxes, I would try to guess how much some of them weighed to see 
I was trying to figure out like what was the average size weight box that we sent out without having to look it up and, um, and actually found some errors. There were problems that we had wow. in our system because of it. So, I mean, just paying attention and being observant and figuring yeah. out what you like about what you do can lead you further down the right path. And so. Wonderful. Well, April Foster, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you again so much for your time. Really have enjoyed uh, hearing your story. Thank you. Enjoyed it myself. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 